0: Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we are today. Part 2, we started with Nehemiah chapter 8 last week, and there is uh, so much in the book, there is so much in this chapter that uh, uh, we need to break it down and walk through it, and that's what we're going to do, continue to do today, Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll read the Word of God in just a few moments, but let me make a couple of introductory comments and kind of set the direction uh, for the uh, message today. Jan and I walk. Uh, we try to walk every morning unless I have a, an early morning appointment. And as we walk, we, uh, we look at yards that probably doesn't surprise you. And uh, we make comments about yards. Now, I, I thought about this before I was going to use the illustration. Uh, I, I don't want you to take offense if I describe your yard. <laughs> you don't live in my neighborhood, OK, so But as we're walking, we'll look at one particular yard, and uh, there are several in our immediate neighborhood, and we say, wow, look at that. Weeds, grown up, uh, bare spots, it hasn't been watered and fertilized, and the flower beds are no longer flower beds, they're weed beds. And uh, so we, we look at that, and we say, wow. And then we pass a yard that is Uh, mowed, and and it's manicured, and somebody has done work in it, and, and you can tell. Now, I think you can probably guess where I'm going with this. Your spiritual life is a lot like a yard. What does it take for a yard to look like the first yard that I described? What does it take for you to do for there to be weeds and bare spots and, 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 and just unkept. What does it take? Nothing. And we'll come to that in just a minute. Nothing remains neutral. And I'm not talking about yards. I'm talking about in your spiritual life. If a yard is left to its own without any work Who or what wins? The weeds. And it's critical to remember in your own spiritual life that if left to yourself without proper care and proper management, what takes over? Sin. And if you look back into the history of Christianity, you look back into the history of different churches, you look back into your own personal history as an individual. Sin happens incrementally. You can take a yard and you can, you can do some reformation, which you ought to do to your own yard, and yet the next day it's not going to look too bad if you leave it alone, and the next day and the next day, but when you go back, you will find that uh, it's overgrown with weeds, and that's the way your spiritual life is too. That's one of the reasons we study the whole Bible, because the whole Bible talks about that. I've reminded you over and over again in studying a book like Nehemiah. There are people who, if you share outside of our church, they will ask you sometimes, well, what's your pastor preaching? Well, he's preaching through... Nehemiah? Well, what did he preach through before? Well, Esther, what did he preach through before that? Ezra? Really? We have to realize that according to the Apostle Paul, that which was written in former days was written just for us. It's written for our instruction so that we can have, now watch this, we can have endurance through encouragement of the Scriptures that leads to hope. And I just added a New Testament verse in there, First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2. And the reason that we do this week by week and we take a book and we just chop it apart and we walk through it verse by verse and section by section is so that you will be established and encouraged or exhorted in your faith. Now, last week I shared beginning, beginning and in chapter eight, that I was absolutely stunned by the people and what they did, and we'll be reading the, the section uh, in just a few moments. You notice I only have two points, and that's a little bit unusual. Normally, I have three or more, but this will suit us for today. But if you'll remember, I I, I told you that I was stunned by what they did and how unlike it is, even in our culture today. In many cases where all of the people of Israel, they came from the outlying areas. It says they assembled as one man to the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of the Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They needed, and they knew they needed, what God had to say to them. They didn't need man's opinions, and yet you look and you contrast that with what is happening in our day and it's happening all around. I, I hope you are at least aware of this enough to, to know it. The time is coming, Paul says, and now is actually, when people will not endure sound teaching that comes from this book, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions in such contrast. The people of God, when they call for Nehemiah and they call for the book, and and that's what I appreciate about you, Heritage, I really do. We are not a perfect church, but I know that week by week, you hunger not for man's opinions. You hunger for what God says in the book. Now, I said all of that last week. So, let's take a look at that, at at, at what we have before us today and walk through it in two different movements (laughs) two different sections and we'll read first of all from chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. Now let me just say something about uh, sometimes we ask you to stand and sometimes we don't. We find in this chapter some things about standing. Now just remember that there are things in the Bible that are descriptive, descriptive. You got that? They describe what goes on. They're not prescriptive. In other words, we don't have to do that. The Bible does not prescribe that we always stand or that we always sit. Uh, For those who believe that this chapter teaches that we must always stand, remember they stood for six hours. And all Ezra did was read the book. And uh, so we're not going to do that. Uh, But we will read and you follow along uh, because there is some really, really good stuff here about hungering for revival. Revival. I hope you're hungry for a revival, but the right kind of revival. And we'll see it in this passage. And all the people gathered, this is verse 1, as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of the Mo- of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, what did he do? He brought the book of the law before the assembly, both men and women. Now watch this, and all who could understand what they heard some people say that it was because it was a different language and so it was done in the language they could understand but i personally think that it's referring to the fact that there were children there all who could understand now i don't know if they had a nursery for the babies but i do believe that it is important and by the way just let me say this it's this not a part of my notes But it is intentional what we do at Heritage and you will look all over this auditorium and you will see children. And sometimes, you know, children get antsy and they get uh, fussy and all the rest of that and that's okay because they need, we believe, to be in with their parents, their moms and their dads, not only to hear the Word of God, it's not always going to be on their level. They can't understand it. But one thing they can understand is watching their moms and dads in worship. that's why it's important. That's not a part of the sermon. That's a freebie, okay? Verse 3, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, about six to noon, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform, ah, that's what I'm standing on, that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood. I guess I could get all the staff up here Matthias, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah and to his uh, right, and P- uh, P- Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malkajan. Wow. Hashem, you know, Jim and Rocky and Eric, and th- those, those are a lot easier. Uh, Hashbadanah. Uh, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left. So all these guys were up there. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their hearts, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a picture of revival. There's some of you in this room, and you remember revival meetings, do you not? Anybody ever been to a revival meeting where you bring in uh, a speaker, an outside speaker, usually an evangelist, one who is gifted? Somet- sometimes, usually that means that they, they holler when they preach, and they go long, and and, and, but but many times they're gifted, gifted people, and I don't know about you, but growing up in, in revivals and then as it shifted, in the old days, it was just a straight-up revival. You had meetings every night of, of a week, and you went. And by the way, I professed faith in Christ as an 11-year-old during a revival. So when you hear me kind of, you know, talking about it in a maybe a little bit of a, a negative way, it, it wasn't all negative. But there was a lot of technique and gimmick that went on as time time went on. So that you had the obligatory pizza party for the students. It was kind of a bait and switch. Get them there for the pizza, preach the gospel. And some churches even baptized them the same night. Got a few phone calls from the parents about that. Or maybe it was a, a special kind of group that came in to attract people. We never had them, but it was always intriguing. The power team. Anybody ever see the power team? So you get somebody to come and all these guys, Andrew, you could have been on the power team, okay? Just, just say it. And they would do all these feats of, of, of strength and lift people up, and they'd get guys like me, wimps, up on the stage and and lift us up, you know, bitch presses in one hand, and tear phone books in half, uh, and, and, and all the rest of that. And then they would preach the gospel. And, and you know, it, again, they, they, they had these, these different things went on. And I'm not saying they were bad, but I'm just saying I want you to see what is happening here. The people of Israel had come back together. They built the wall, rebuilt the wall and the temple, and they knew they needed God. It wasn't something worked up by the preacher. Ezra didn't say, let's have a revival meeting. They called for him to come and do something very, very simple. Read from the Torah. It's kind of like preaching from Nehemiah. And so he did. He read. There were all these guys up there. You know, I just try to, in my mind's eye, wonder what that might have looked like. Did any of them get sleepy, you know, during the reading? Did any of the people? Apparently not. Apparently revival broke out. Because if you see, when, when he blessed the Lord after the reading, and they all said amen, amen, and they fell down on their faces and they worshiped. And I've been reading through this in the last couple of weeks, and, and I, I don't know that I have any expectations of what you will do outwardly, visibly, in response to this sermon, but I desperately want you to be revived. Now, here's the thing. Well, what do you mean by revival? I mean that you have a new experience of the joy of Jesus, a, a renewal of that relationship that exists between you and God, so that it's not just another Sunday morning you come in and you sing And you look at your watch and you hope that the preacher gets through at a particular time. And I'm not saying that's what you do. But all over this nation, this world, that's what is going on. And what we are after is the same thing that what they experienced in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. They had revival. But here's something that you need to see. Not just a stirring up of emotions. Their revival is is the way that we want to see it at Heritage. And I think the way way that God wants it to be seen, it was a revival through reformation from the Word. Let me me read to you. You follow along. Worship guide, Jim Ella, the top quote, quote. Some of you know Jim. And he is, he's a revivalist, but he's a revivalist who believes that revival comes, true revival comes through reformation. So he wrote this. I, these are three long quotes, but I just want to read this one to you. Look at this. We should not want a revival of experience alone without true reformation. And so the term revival is not adequate for our day unless we add the qualifier's reformational, or word-driven. It is not wrong to desire revival if we mean a revival that is a resurgence of correct believing along with the enlivening of our experience with God which comes out of, not apart from, sound doctrine. This means that I believe the most long-lasting change would not come by only having merely warm or even powerful, dramatic experiences with God. No, what we need is for some of the major organizations. Hmm, wonder what he could have meant by that. And churches to reshape their view of the gospel, to conform to the Bible. Those yards that Jan and I looked at needed revival. But in order for that to happen, they needed reformation. And some of you do yard work, and you know what it takes. It takes a lot of weeding. It takes a lot of pruning. It takes a lot of fertilizing. It takes a lot of watering. And listen to me, and I'm going to come back to this, not just once, but every day. the great revivals of the past, all the way from the book of Acts. We'll look at some of that in just a minute. But I'm thinking in the earlier days of this country, first starting in Great Britain and making its way over here, that that sense of revival. Anybody ever heard of the first great awakening that happened around 1730 to 1740? And you know, our country started with a kind of revival. The pilgrims came over and there was this sense of the fear of God that permeated everything that they did. And they weren't perfect, I know that. But there was this sense of the fear of God. And and for a generation, it, it, it kind of continued. But what happens? If you don't tend to the yard, the weeds grow up. And that's what happened. And by the time... Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, young pastor. The weeds of sin and apathy had grown up. Worldliness among the people. And Jonathan Edwards, now this is an interesting thing. You go back and you read some of the history. The preachers didn't use gimmicks. Surprise, surprise, how did they have a revival? They preached the Word. Do you know what doctrine, common through all of the revivals, the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and much of the preaching? I'm talking about John Wesley? Yes, Wesley, a good Methodist. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. The theme that they preached most was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Far from dumbing down, I feel like that maybe sometimes, I hope I'm not dumbing down. But listen to some of the, here was the the title of the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached that really kicked off the revival. God glorified in the work of redemption and then he preached that famous sermon later on, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Where he pictured people without Christ and, and as a spider would be dangled over the flames and shrivel up. And he used that. Now, Jonathan Edwards did not raise his voice. He had a hard time seeing. He preached from a manuscript. And he would look down and he would read his manuscript. No theatrics. And during the sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the people in the congregation begin wailing and moaning and weeping. Oh, a little bit like, like, like Nehemiah chapter 8. Falling to the ground and worship. At one time, he had to stop his reading and tell them to be quiet. So that he could continue Preaching. Says from what I read to you a minute ago, they took time to read and they took time to explain. No propping up, no bait and switch. You know why? And and I believe this with all of my heart. I I, listen, I am not for boring preaching. I don't want my sermons to be boring. I'm looking around just to say. See any rolling of the eyes or anything like that? I I believe that this book, properly explained, and I pray that I do that, is relevant for every age, and I'm talking about every age, 1700s, 1500s, 2,022, and every age, from our students to our children, even though they don't understand maybe the big words, get lost in some of the things. I believe this book is relevant for everything that we need. They treated it, I said this last week and quoted this passage, they treated this book, the people in Nehemiah 8, the reason they had revival, they treated this book as if it were their life. Because it was. I I, do, I don't know that Ezra was reading out of Deuteronomy. It could have been, but you look at that last phrase. These are this is no empty word, folks. This is your very life. I was handed an article, uh, Dolores. You gave me this article a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was interesting. Out of the out of the Baptist Messenger. And I, I read it, I made notes on it, and I, I thought deeply about it. Um, eight. Lar- this is a lifeway research. The eight largest church leaders did this, took this survey. Eight largest areas of concern for churches. Now, in your mind, as I just said that, what what are the greatest concerns as you look around in our world today? What would you think that church leaders would say would be the greatest concern for churches? Now, here's here's what's interesting. I, I wrote through this. There wasn't any scripture in it. So, there was no help from scripture. And they did eight, eight, biggest concerns. I'm just going to read them for you. But I did an interesting thing. I said, hmm, I wonder if this could be applied to anything else. So instead of churches, I scratched it out and put corporations. And every concern, every concern that these leaders, this this, this is a lifeway research thing, 1,500 church leaders. Every concern, you could scratch out the word church or congregation and put company. And it would fit. Or club. First one, attracting more members. Or more consumers. Is that a legitimate concern? Well, you you could say it is. The worry over gaining new attendees. Hmm. Second. I I don't have time in this message to go over all these. I I just put this out here by way of illustration, and I'm going to contrast this. Financial issues. Yeah, yeah, after COVID, you can see that. Here's another one, and I underline this. Dwindling and aging members. Well, I understand dwindling, but I'm, you know, that... Why is it a concern of having too many elderly attendees? Now, I don't know what that is because I'm not elderly. Some of you are. Okay, so what do we do? We, we rig this and we, go, we begin to go after a particular demographic. I, I thought, wow, I can see why if pastors are thinking like this, that pragmatism has taken over the evangelical church, rather than just reading and explaining the Word of God and praying to the God who wrote this book to give revival by reformation through His Word. Well, it went on facilities and properties. I understand. I understand that you you drive by churches and you think, oh, oh, I. Even if it was a great church, great preacher, I don't know if I'd go into that building. It looks like it needs to be condemned. I get it. By the way, we're fixing that awning, so don't be afraid <laughs> to, dri- <laughs> to drive under it, okay? Leadership issues. Well, that, that's one you can hang on to. Uh, raising up new leaders, keeping the clergy because clergy, clergy are, are quitting, getting burned out. I I put two exclamation marks by this. I won't even get into it. Inclusion and diversity. Ooh, okay. Building community, engaging and retaining groups. What about having a concern of standing fast in the Lord? Of knowing the Word of God. Of, of encouraging your people, because your biggest concern is that some of your people, maybe many of your people, are not having a consistent time with the Lord every day to get fresh intake from the Word. Folks, those are things that are concerns. Arthur W. Pink, you remember him, uh, He's no longer alive, but he was a a late reformer. He said there is only one safeguard against error. That could be the biggest concern that I have in the church, error. And that is to establish, to be established in the faith. And for that to happen, there has to be a prayerful and diligent study and receiving with meekness the engrafted Word of God. Let me hit it again. I cannot say... Emphatically enough, children, please, please, ask your mom and dad, students, if you use your phone, I, that's okay, but look up in the morning a scripture and meditate on it and ask the Lord to revive your life. Adults, moms and dads, I heard somebody say, one of, one of the most powerful images, that I I can remember, this was an adult, was getting up in the morning and walking in to the, to the, the den or the living room and seeing my dad with his Bible open and reading, and I knew he was praying for me. We want revival, reformation, It's not going to happen just one. You can't just fix up the yard once. You've got to go daily. And daily there is that thing that is happening. I love when our students go to things like Mission Arlington. Now, some of you don't know, we had a little bit of a COVID outbreak. So all of them aren't here. they have quarantined and safe and all the rest of that. I love it, and and I saw a few heads bob a few minutes ago when I I was mentioning about the quiet time, but here's what I observe, and here's the question I have. The the students before they left for Arlington, okay, some of you that went, if you went last year, did you continue in that revived kind of, of, of mindset, heart set? Or did you stop doing some of the things, the reformation that you needed to do and the weeds grew up and before long, a week, two weeks, three weeks, you were back in, in the normal mode of operation. Just talking like you, you used to, to your moms and dads or to your friends and, 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 and the change just evaporated. And I, I know that you came back revived. I heard the reports of what God did through you. And there's a way to keep that. Not, not just the emotions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fervor, the, 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 the unification that you felt, the, the purpose, and all of the rest of that. You know, we, we, need, we need to be unified. It says they gathered as one man, and I was thinking about that. How do we get to that? How do we get to that unity of the faith? Jesus in his high priestly prayed, prayer prayed for unity, but how does that unit how do we be unified? Heritage? The, the context is we're unified in the word. Sanctify them in the word. Your word is truth. Well, there there are a lot of issues going on right now. Our Southern Baptist Convention was held last week. I haven't been to a Southern Baptist Convention in many years. We 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 are as a church, I would say, loosely affiliated with the SBC. And and there have been things I, I've shared this with with individuals, not not so much publicly. We go through the Word, but but talking about reformed. Our, our Reformation and Revival and all the rest of that, understand this. The Southern Baptist Convention is a parachurch group. The only, the only institution that was begun by Jesus is the church. Okay. And we understand that, but we, identif- we, we sometimes participate and partner with parachurch organizations. Those are man-made, just so you'll understand but when you're pairing or partnering with groups you want them to at least share some of the same basic things that you do and to a large degree the sbc does but increasingly the last couple of years i have become deeply concerned politics all the rest of that but the question I've asked is Is, is the SBC just um, taking liberties with non essentials, or is this a little lean in the direction of a downgrade, full on downgrade? And you, we, we could talk about who was voted in for the pastors' conference and the, the president of the uh, SBC. Uh, the conservative candidates did not make it, Wh- which is basically communicating that people in large at large in the SBC are, are okay with the status quo. And uh, but one thing really caught my eye, uh, and, and uh, I wondered how everybody in the room would feel about this. But I, I thought, you know, at at, uh, at Heritage we we have certain things that are important to us. One of those is the teaching of complementarianism. Now, I just said that our children are in here. They can understand. So, parents, you need to explain what complementarianism means over dinner today. Okay, lunch. And egalitarianism. One means that basically God created man and woman as equal in worth, but not as equal in role in the church. And so we believe that God has said very clearly in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says that women cannot be pastors and leaders of churches. That, that is just so abundantly clear. And even the SBC said it in some of their own documents in recent history, the Baptist faith and message. So along comes a very significant church in Southern California, Saddleback Church. And they ordained three women pastors, and now Rick Warren is stepping aside, and so they called a couple, and she's going to be the co pastor. There was a resolution to kick Saddleback out. And guess who showed up on the floor to speak? Rick Warren. And he said something like this. Let's set aside our differences and work together in unity to spread the gospel. Now we're talking about revival through reformation of the Word. Maybe some of you can email me or text me or see me after church. Am, am I We talked about the concerns of churches. Am I right to be concerned that this is a slippery slope? Perhaps, perhaps. I don't know. But they decided that, hey, we've got enough wiggle room. We're okay with that. And I think, okay, if we're partnered with a group that is doing that, then what happens when your child again comes to you and asks you the question, well, my friend goes to this church and they have a woman pastor and why do, why do we not have? Or they ask you these other questions like I mentioned last week. Mom, Dad, I, I, I know you've said I'm a girl, but I want to be a boy. And I asked you last week, would you know how to answer your child if they came to you and asked that? I really have very little that I can do with other churches. I I may disagree with other churches. I I may get together and pray with other pastors from other churches who actually do this kind of thing, but when it comes to Heritage Baptist Church, my desire is to have revival, this Heart that is a flame for God through reformation Amen. by the book Amen. the answers are there I, we may talk about some of those answers in the future individually I, I don't think they're non-issues okay Let's move on to the second point. I haven't answered all your questions, but I hope that at least that we have raised enough of issues that we can, down the road, talk about some of these things. Here's the second point. Bible exposition bears fruit. And I'm talking about individually and I'm talking about corporally. If it doesn't bear the fruit that is shown here in this second uh, part, uh, chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, then we have to to ask the question, what's happening in the hearts of people? Or is it true Bible exposition? Because I just think it will, beginning with verse 7. Okay, all of these people, Bonnie, uh, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebel, anyway, let me just go through that helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense of the word so that the people could understand the reading. Now let's move on. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, that's how he'll be called for the remainder of the book. And Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. Why would they say that? Because something had happened. As they read the word and explained it, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, "Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and drink por- send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved." They were weeping and grieving over what. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You've quoted that, no doubt, a number of times over the years. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Why did they weep and grieve? These are God followers. Now, you, you would think that, and let me walk, I'm going to walk you through a couple of scriptures, okay? I'm not going to read all of these. You, you, you would believe that they would weep and grieve over their sin if they were non-believers. These are believers. See, on the day of Pentecost, when they were confronted with the Word of God that Peter preached, the gospel, they repented. They had this contrition. Look, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. These were non-believers who became believers. And and then later on, we see that repentance is a component of the gospel message. Repentance should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus. And again, I I pray for this kind of response. Now, I know we're good Baptists and we don't, uh, you know, we... Sometimes we don't show emotions, and that's, that's fine. I, I don't care about that. What, what, I, and I think Ezra really cared about the heart response. But this weeping and this contrition were not just superficial emotions. Hear me about what else it was not. It was not about being caught. There are times, right, uh, children, young people, adults... Oh, I'm so sorry, you're contrite when you get caught. No, this was not that. This was the Word of God that was being brought to bear on their lives. And they, they were sorry to God. They knew that God's grace is not magnified by taking a sinner and telling him he's saved while wow, there's no change of heart. There, there's no new hatred for sin, and, and, and that's going to happen first in the heart, inside. There's no new regard for the glory and the honor of God. He, he's not in the business of taking rebel sinners and converting them without those things happening. And so weeping and grieving... Are appropriate for believers. And, and, and again, let me let me just say this to you: in your own quiet time, it's not mechanical. I hope, and it's not perfunctory. You just do it. Okay, it's Monday. I can check the box. For those of you who are following the one year, you're in the book of Proverbs. You're almost finished you're in the new testament you're reading sometimes a psalm and it's not just so you can check the box it's so as you read and you look at something all of a sudden the holy spirit convicts you you're contrite you repent and sometimes maybe even grieve and weep over the fact that you're not living the way that you need to live is, is that does that does that connect? And that's what should be happening every Sunday, I wonder sometimes. But watch what happens. When I read that, did that sound weird to you? Crickets. Crickets. They they were weeping and, and they were grieving. You say, well, that's what that's what the revivalist wants. That's what the preacher wants, right? And Ezra says, stop. You know why? Weeping and grieving over our sin, individually and corporately, is a good thing, but it's only half the gospel. And we see it right here. You're weeping, you're grieving. Now it's time to stop. Do you know why? Because the other side of the gospel has already been poured out for you. Repent, be baptized. Let's go back to these verses that I read a few minutes ago and emphasize something else. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The forgiveness of your sins. And there, as a part of the gospel, not only repentance, but forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And so what Ezra was doing is saying, it's not just a message of do more. We need to do. But our message of do always is preceded, and I hope this doesn't sound trite to some of you, by the message of done. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done. It's not hearing seven new applications for overcoming the sin in your life. The message is, if you're contrite, if you're grieving, you look at that word in your quiet time, you hear it on Sunday morning in an ABF class or a Sunday school class or you hear it in a Sunday morning sermon, we quickly move from the grieving and the repenting to the believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done in his sacrifice on the cross. And and that's basically what Ezra was saying. He was saying, look to Jesus. You're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Put aside. Put aside the things that entangle you. Run the race with endurance. Clear out the, the weeds But here's how you do it. You look to Jesus because He is the author. And He is the finisher of our faith. You know what what I just described to you? What, What we say around here, at least we have from time to time, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And that's why I can say to you in my sin, and I'm, I'm personalizing this. When I'm reading the Word of God, I'm preparing for a sermon or I'm having my quiet time in my sins, and sometimes sometimes it's, it's present. It, it, and I've shared with you before, maybe it's a, it's a, a, a I've been cranky to Jan. And the Holy Spirit convicts me. And I I may not weep openly in my quiet time early in the morning, but I can tell you I'm contrite. And and, and then the Lord shows me his forgiveness. And I have that bent to change. So sometimes and, and by the way, sometimes I'm reminded of something that I've done in the past. That I'm still beating myself up over. And it's it's not a self help kind of thing. It is applying the gospel of forgiveness to that thing. Sometimes when my strength feels so small, and it uh, and my faith is weak, and I, I I there are times when I wonder, can I can I really get up and preach another sermon? I just. Feel Lord, I, you know, these are your people. I feel like I just preach the same thing every week. Repentance for our sins, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds me, there's nothing better you can preach. And I realize that that's the message. That's the message of, of Nehemiah chapter 8, at least up to this point. And here's the reminder. Three, this is just a passage out of Romans 5. I just want this to be a strengthening to you and an encouraging to you as it is to me. I just said, I, you know, I just, I just feel so weak. I feel a sinner, even sometimes an enemy. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. I told you a little bit ago, Jonathan Edwards, that was his theme. That was John Wesley's theme. That was George Whitefield's theme when great revivals broke out. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And boy, these next three things. Here is the gospel of forgiveness applied. While we were weak, while we are weak, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While you're a sinner, while I'm a sinner, Christ died for us. Do you see that whatever it is that you're going through, what's the remedy? Christ died for us. While we were enemies, even if your bent has taken you that other direction, look at this. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved with His life. What is this thing, the joy of the Lord is our strength? It's found in the gospel. More than that, we also do what? Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. Yesterday, it, it seemed like Sunday. Did Some of you who were here, did it seem like Sunday? Yes. Yeah, we started at 10 o'clock, we ended at noon. <laughs> we celebrated the life of Sam Karui, and over and over again, um, you know, Sam, Sam's life was not perfect. But in, in some ways that, that I, I envy him, I, I, it was exemplary. Because if, if Sam was known for anything, he was known for joy. And sometimes I wondered, is that real? I never ask him that. I, I, because it, it just it was always the same. It was always consistent. And I thought to myself, and I shared yesterday that Sam taught me Swahili, only one phrase. And he probably taught it to you too. And every time I saw him, it was the same greeting. Dugu, brother. But then he said, let's add something. Dugu, Yangu, my brother. And we would greet each other with Dugu, Yangu, and we would hug And I knew that Sam was my friend. And I'm no longer going to hear that from Sam. But based on the gospel and the joy of the Lord being my strength, I can hear that every day from my heavenly Father. Marty. Dugu Yangu. You are my friend, not because you deserve it, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God calls you His friend. I hope that resonates. I hope that you hear the gospel, and if there is any doubt in your mind that you know the Lord, Please see me. Please see one of our staff. Please see anybody who looks mature and like they know the word. Really. Draw them aside and say, hey, I, I'm struggling with this. Could you help me with the gospel? Uh, and <laughs> people all over this congregation will be more than happy to do that. And I, I'm going to pray that you would do that. I'm going to pray for us as a congregation that we would be revived by reformation through the word. And uh, two, I'm going to pray for something else. Chip and Cindy, you're leaving on Tuesday, right? Lord willing, we're, uh, Randy and Joy, are you guys here? May not be here, huh? Okay, recovering. Okay, and uh, Rose Morgan, I think is going with you. Okay, uh, we're going to pray for them because they're be they're going to be going to Albania, and there are prayer guides out there on the Welcome Center that you can get and pray for them as they go. Uh, this is something that they have done for a number of years, uh, going over and helping with a vacation Bible school kind of thing for people, international uh, workers that are coming from all over the world, and they're going to be with their kids, and it's going to be going to be good. But there, uh, Chip said this as they get, or maybe it was Cindy, I don't know who wrote the email, but as they get older, traveling is harder. We understand that, don't we? So pray for them, not just for safety, but for strength and encouragement as they go. So let's pray, and uh, then we'll sing and be dismissed. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. It really does encourage us, whether people do or not. Um, And uh, so, Lord, we look to your word for the encouragement we need, for the ability to stand fast, for the ability to be revived. By reforming according to your word, by pulling out the weeds that we've allowed to grow up. Lord, I pray that you'd change attitudes and I pray you'd change actions in the lives of the people in this congregation, beginning with me, and that we would continually be conformed to the image of Christ. So we thank you for this. Now we pray for Chip and Cindy and Randy and Joy and Rose and about 20 others, I think, that are going from America and Europe to be a part of this time of ministry and mission. Pray that you help them as they go, give them the strength physically, the stamina, and the spiritual strength as well. So we thank you for being such a wonderful father to us and calling us your friends because of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.